Hey, everybody. Before we get started with Jordan Young, the author is Spike Jones, Off the Record, The Man Who Murdered Music, which is a great book. The most recent version is come, uh, coming out, and it's got um, all kinds of uh, updated information, uh, new stuff about Spike Jones. You're going to love it. It's a great conversation, a great book. I wanted to bring your attention to uh, my best friend Dan has a cat named Skeeter who has FIP. Um, which is a, a very uh, uh, upsetting disease for your cat to have. And he's trying to raise money for the exper experimental drugs for it that are quite expensive. Um, so if you go to bit.ly forward slash save Skeeter, that's bit.ly forward slash S-A-V-E-S-K-E-E-T-E-R, you can help raise money um, to, for them to pay for their cat's medicine uh, to keep, uh, keep her alive. So um, it would really mean a great deal to me if you did that. Um, so please check that out, bit.ly forward slash save Skeeter. And now listen to my interview with Jordan Young. I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. The year is 1957. The album Dinner Music for People Who Aren't Very Hungry. The artist Spike Jones. My guest this week is Jordan Young. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jason. Um, I'm excited to speak with you. Uh, as listeners will know, we recently spoke with Spike Jones Jr. Um, to get the the sort of personal in-depth perspective and the perspective of somebody who had to take over for his own ailing father. Just such an interesting and sad but fascinating story. But also, uh, I, since since you have been chronicling his Spike's life uh, for how long now? Uh, let's see. The first edition came out in '84. Wow. Okay. So not very long. Yeah, I mean, you, you you're, you're not very concerned with it. <laughs> Holy <laughs> cow! And the fourth edition is the most recent edition, correct? Yes. Wow. And it's is what sort of stuff? Well, let's start there. First of all, start with the name of the book, and then and then I'd really like to know like what has changed over the course of the years that that really is like a real revelation where you have to update the book. Mm. Spike Jones off the record, the man who murdered music, and boy, a lot has changed over the years. You know, after I did the well, when I started in the early '90s to. Uh, to go to work on the second edition, I realized I hadn't told the whole story. I, uh, I mean, there were still a lot of people out there I hadn't interviewed, including uh, people in the sort of his competitors. You know, the Schnickel Fritzers and the sure. Corn Cobblers and the uh, the Hoosier Hotshots, uh, and some of these guys were still around. So I ran around uh, talking to as many of them as I could find, and. That was all, but there were other other people too, uh, you know, Stan Freeberg and Bill Dana and uh, uh, other people like that, associates or, you know, certainly people that uh, uh, have something to say uh, about him. Uh, and then uh, I guess it was the third edition, I got hold of uh, Doodles Weaver's son, Wynn, had these I, I already knew about them but he didn't want to let them go initially i mean he didn't he didn't want to show them to anybody and he didn't want to he didn't want to look at them himself it was too mm -hmm. intimidating for him uh but he had a box of doodles uh diaries doodle had doodles had started keeping a diary in wow. 1925 when he was 12 years old oh wow and uh in fact that's how i determined doodles actual birth date um my math is uh 
Uh, I think we determined that I, I, I determined that the uh, he was born in 1913. That's not what it says on his death certificate uh, huh. or in any of the bits. Uh, in fact, uh, Wynn went down uh, at my suggestion. Wynn went to the uh, Hall of Records to pick up the birth certificate, and they couldn't. They were happy to take us twenty-five dollars, but they couldn't find the birth certificate. Wow! Uh, but in Doodle's 1925 diary, he says. You know, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Hooray, I'm 12 years old today. Mm. And in the 1926 diary, it's yippee, I'm 13 today. <laughs> so there's no question that, you know, his birthday was 1913. And that's, I think, it's correct in this edition for the first time. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the diaries themselves are, are just a revelation. Uh, he's, I mean, uh, really extensive. Uh, notes and commentaries on the spike jones years but then uh 20 years later he's obsessively reading and rereading the diaries and making notes on the margins wow so the margins i was drunk here <laughs> um, i you know i mean he he confesses i mean it took him 20 years to face the truth uh but he he finally in the 70s as he's rereading these notes in the diaries from 20 years 20 or 25 years earlier he's he's uh owning up to the fact that he was you know frequently uh drunk and and, and spike in fact fired him for for being drunk and wow. uh um but there's no there's nothing like that in the in the original you know uh diary entries holy cow that's amazing i um I would love to know now then what got you, where did you first hear or hear of Spike Jones and how long before you were a fan and then what kept you continuing to be obsessed with him? Yeah, it was a great question. Jason, I was, uh, was about 13. We just moved into a new house in uh, North Orange County. Mm -hmm. uh, I was about to start high school. So my friend, my, one of my best friends and his friend, who was uh, old enough to drive, uh, were coming over frequently that summer to use the pool, uh, you know, hang out and use the pool and stuff. And um, uh, it, it might have been the first time they came over that summer. They pulled up in my driveway with their furious face blaring out of their car, probably an eight-track tape in the car. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, how can you hear that and not just go slightly nuts you know uh my in fact my uh, one of my cousins told me just recently that he had played it for his 15 year old grandson and the kid went crazy over it. he just couldn't can't get enough of it so <laughs> uh, anyway that started that i started uh you know this was long long before anybody thought of ebay or anything like that so i'm running down to the neighborhood thrift stores and buying 78s and uh whatever i can get my hands on and eventually I, you know, find the uh, best of Spike Jones LP and things like that. But that's some years in the future even. And um, I met Doodles in 1976 uh, at a banquet. Mm -hmm. I, I think he was standing in line in front of me when I, I uh, initially, so I, I sort of maneuvered things to get at his table. And there's only like four or five of us at the table. And I was, I, I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to hear about working with Spike, but uh, he kept me laughing so hard I never got to ask him anything. <laughs> entertaining us all night at the table by doing ridiculous things. And uh, the following year, I interviewed uh, Mickey Katz for the LA Times. Mickey was uh, Joel Gray's father. Yeah. 
um, you know, worked with Spike for a while and then went off and had his own uh, band doing these uh, English, uh, English, English mm-hmm. parodies, which are really great. And uh, I got to know Mickey quite well. And uh, and then I also met, uh, around that time, I met Eddie Brandt, who was one of Spike's writers. He had a, um, a memorabilia shop up in North Hollywood. And uh, you'd go hang out there and he'd tell you stories and things. And uh, after I, after I met, had met the three of them, I got to thinking I should do an article for the times and then i um i thought no this is really a book and it wasn't until um my then wife's cousin called uh i had done a piece on the 40th anniversary of dear Fuhrer's face for the la times and my then wife's cousin saw it and called and said hey there's a there's a used furniture store out here in culver city out in you know the west la area um that has a box of spike Jones sheet music but when I went out there, instead, what I found was a uh, in the guy's back office, he had six huge file boxes of not only sheet music, but the original arrangements, the remnants, I should say, of the, you know, the, the music library wow. arrangements used by the band. And uh, best of all, I guess, uh, office correspondence. This bike saved everything, more carbons of, uh, from the early 50s on, I think, carbons. Oh, of, my God correspondence memos and, and everything and so i thought well now i have to do the book i don't have a choice now you know? yeah uh, yeah that stuff thrown in your lap i mean you, what else are you supposed to do wow just, uh, serendipity it just it just fell in my lap what are you going to do <laughs> It's uh, one of the things I talked with Spike Jr. about was uh, this very weird phenomenon that happens with certain people, um, certain, he did not have a central archive, he didn't hire an archivist, so his stuff got spread out among the fans, and so now trying to come up with a succinct in one place archive doesn't really happen, but it's fortunate that at least that big of a chunk is in the hands of someone like you, who's going to use it and expose, expose people to what's in there, which I, is the uh, kind of thing yeah, I appreciate. Uh, there are, I don't know to what extent he told you the story, but everything was basically scattered to the winds. Yeah. Uh, there was a warehouse. He had, he had a warehouse full of stuff. Um, and his then manager, Peter James, who was, who had been one of his comedians, uh, was told to take care of it. Wow. That's a phrase I heard. He was told to take care of it. And so he took care of it. He called the uh, St. Vincent de Paul uh, Society, whatever, and uh, they came with the trucks. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, a lot of it ended up in the St. Vincent de Paul thrift store in Los Angeles. And just, uh, again, serendipity of... Uh, Warren, a guy named Warren Dexter, who was a big Spike Jones fan, a huge fan, just happened to be there, apparently, oh God. Uh, when the trucks arrived and uh, managed to rescue an awful lot of this material. And Warren has since passed away, but uh, there are three or four of us, Spike's archivist, uh, Ted Herring, and uh, a guy named Randy, Randy Morris, a, an entertainer in Florida. And uh, a fellow named Skip Craig, who uh, Spike himself designated as number one city slicker fan. Um, uh, A couple of other folks uh, just had massive collections of stuff, you know. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Wow. 
That's crazy. Yeah, when I hear stuff like that, I'm I'm always happy that again, it's perfect. It's it's ha- I'm glad that that serendipity did occur in that case that that stuff got to be preserved and you know who knows one day maybe this stuff ends up in a museum who knows but at least it's at least it's saved from the ravages of time. Uh, the instruments, you know, all over the place. I mean, some of them mm-hmm. end up in, in, in flea markets and uh, and that type of thing. Um, some of them ended up in, you know, antique shops. Uh, this fellow named Carl Mack, who was based in New Orleans, uh, was able to purchase a, um, I guess Spike Jr. described them as his dad's uh, Sunday best, these chrome cowbells. Uh-huh. And he was able to purchase them from a musician uh, who had purchased them from uh, Helen Graco. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's um, the, uh, I think, I guess it's the Kentucky Symphony Orchestra. I don't know if you can still find this performance online. It was only a few weeks ago. Uh, and the third time, I think, that they've done this called uh, Who Spiked the Symphony? Mm-hmm. But the uh, Kentucky, uh, sorry, Kentucky Symphony Orchestra performing in Cincinnati did this wonderful concert with Carl Mack at the, uh, at the Cowbells. That's great. Uh, I love it. I also like when that stuff gets used, you know, it's, it adds a little extra purpose to it and meaning. Uh, you know, there've been a number of attempts to re- revive the Spike Jones sound over the years. For sure. Do you, uh, so after, so it sounds like Spike stuck with you. It just seemed like it must've been, his music must've just been a part of your existence. If by the time you're getting to writing stuff, you know, professionally that this is, this is the stuff you, you're thinking about in the back of your head. Yeah, I would, you know, I mean, back in high school, I would take these seven days over to the campus music station, you know, and try to get them to play them. I think they did <laughs> once or twice, but, you know, some antidote for the, uh, you know, uh, daily renditions of Barbara Ann and um, all this, all this stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Spike himself. I mean, he had a lot of trouble with, you know, when this kind of stuff started uh, uh, in the in the 50s. You know, I mean, uh, Stan Freeberg, I think, was more successful at at satirizing uh, rock and roll. And uh, but this it's not even rock. I mean, it's just this horrid uh, the pop music. So this it was uh, and I I can't quote it, but uh, Spike himself made uh, this comment, you know, something to the effect that with all the advances in medical science and everything, I mean, uh, why can't we cure things like wake up little Susie? (laughs) I I would take these things out of the campus uh, record station in high school, trying to, you know, as, as an antidote to this kind of stuff, but they, I couldn't get them on on the air very often, just once or twice. I know they played my 78 of uh, Mr. Gallagher and Mr. Sheen once. Mm Mm-hmm. The Paul Whiteman recording, and they—I think they played at least one or two spikes. But let's let's talk for a moment about uh, why you recommended dinner music for people who aren't very hungry. I'd like I'd like to know what 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 stands out about it. What's what's why give this one a listen? Yeah, it's it's my favorite by far of all of Spike's uh, albums. Um, I think it's a, a wonderfully inventive use of of. Uh, of sound effects and, and everything. It's, uh, um, I, I think at that, at that point in time, I mean, this is already pretty late in his career, right? Uh, 
just uh, evidence that, uh, you know, he was still uh, coming up with all sorts of uh, wonderfully crazy and inventive ideas. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the uh, uh, demonstration of the garbage disposal and then the garbage disposal grinding up the violinist and then, the, um, you know, uh, things like that. Of course, the, uh, the black and blue Daniel Waltz. Yeah. A, a, re, a makeover, if you will, of uh, the uh, the Blue Danube that he'd done much earlier in his career. Um, just wonderfully crazy and, uh, again, very inventive. Have you, uh, through his music, it sounds like, again, you were introduced to it by some friends. Did you make any, have you made friends over uh, the love of his music? And have you made any friends uh, with people who worked with him? Made a few enemies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I was fortunate to make uh, make friends with a number of people who work with Spike. Again, uh, Mickey Katz, mm-hmm. also Joe Siracusa, who is the at ninety nine is the uh, the last surviving uh, member of the City of Slickers. Um, several other people who uh, who had worked with Spike were were. were I became good friends with them. Sadly, they're all they're all gone now, except for Joe. Sure. Uh, what what is that relationship uh, like when when these people? Uh, I know my experience when I've approached some people about their work. Sometimes people are like, "Why is this the thing you've picked?" Other people are more than happy to talk about this thing because it, it was a very important or happy part of their lives. I'm curious, like, what the range of responses you got to uh, wanting to hear more about the City Slickers. Yeah, you know, pretty much all over the place. I mean, a guy named Earl Bennett, who became a very good friend. Uh, I became very good friends with. Uh, he performed with Spike under the name Sir Frederick Gass. Mm-hmm. Um, comedy, you know, material in the uh, in the stage shows, and uh, he's on a number of the recordings, like Riders in the Sky and Tennessee Waltz. I went to your wedding, and uh, initially Earl just didn't want to talk. And uh, I set up a, there's a group called Spurback, it's a um, old time radio preservation um, um, organization uh, in Los Angeles. I set up a, um, a panel with uh, Joe Syracuse and Earl Bennett and two of Spike's writers, um, Eddie Brandt and uh, Eddie Maxwell. And uh, it's about 30 years ago. And uh, a couple of days before the event, Earl decided he wasn't going to do it if I was going to be on the panel as the moderator, which was the intent. And uh, so I was replaced at the last minute by Cleve Herman, who had been a, uh, I guess, an LA uh, disc jockey and somebody, you know, that everybody knew. And uh, and after the event, I, I went up and I thanked Earl for participating. And he said, you still want to do that interview? Uh, yeah. I'll come up to the house next week and we'll do it. You know, uh, just a complete turnaround. Yeah, he either loved you or hated you. Okay. Uh, and unfortunately, in my case, it was both. I mean, uh, um, first he hated me and then, and then he loved me. I was his best friend for 10 years and then uh, he found another reason to hate me again <laughs> but i mean uh he was he was incredibly candid uh 
not everything that he had to say about Spike was was positive. I mean, um, but I mean, uh, uh, he was also quite good friends with Spike's daughter Linda, and he he had told her all of these things over the years, you know. And uh, so he told me both the positive and the negative, and that's really what you want if you're going to write a book about somebody, yeah. not just an article. Uh, you know, um, you can't you can't just write um, about all the good stuff. You can't. Uh, they don't sound like real people, do they? I mean, right. If you if you try to if you try to erase all the blemishes and all, I mean, there is absolutely no one, uh, including myself. I mean, uh, you know, none of us are, are saints. Uh, and there's absolutely no one that in 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 history, whether you're talking about music history or uh, anything else, that you could write about. Uh, you know, there's there's good and there's not so good. You know, you can't. You, you simply can't write a book about somebody and erase all the blemishes and all the, the scars and everything. Absolutely. I mean, the, this is one of those things in, in entertainment um, books, especially that, um, that walk a, a weird line. I used to collect, you know, biographies and autobiographies, but those things were the exact opposite. They were carefully curated. Um, they were not, you know, they were probably dictated. Most, most of them were dictated to ghost writers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in fact, people have told me, um, I think more than one person made this comment, but, uh, you know, uh, I admire Spike Jones all the more reading, you know, reading about all this other stuff, you know, uh, you know, you, you, you've given it to us warts and all. Yeah. I admire him even more, you know, uh, just knowing what really went on behind the scenes and everything. The... Let's see. Sorry, my. <laughs> well, uh, let me just. Uh, no, yeah. Uh, jump in on that though. The uh, I think behind the scenes, and most people don't realize this. Mm -hmm. I think very few people realize uh, behind the scenes. To me, is where Spike demonstrated his real his real genius, because he was an absolute uh, public relations and marketing wizard. And mm -hmm. even though he had publicists and he had managers and he had, uh, you know, people, pe people doing all these things, marketing and stuff. He it was it was most of it was coming down from the top. You know, he was he was the one masterminding the the uh, public relations campaigns and the and the marketing of the uh, the product and the tours and everything. That's crazy. It is. is 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 it do you think that is um some people would say perfectionist some people would say control freak what, what do you think uh, why do you think you wanted that kind of control over it i think both those labels are accurate um he was he was a perfectionist um and you know but um i was just smarter than everybody else you know mm -hmm. he, he he hired a lot of he hired a lot of great talent, but uh, and he was and he was a tremendous uh, talent scout uh, too. I mean, he hired all the best musicians. He didn't he didn't hire you know he didn't typically hire comedians unless he was unless that was all they were, you know, he was hiring you as a comedian. Mm -hmm. But most of the guys in the band he hired as musicians, and then he discovered that they had latent uh, comedic abilities. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. 
could do sound effects where they were uh, songwriters or, or they could stand on their head and play the ukulele or whatever it was, you know. Uh, the the feeling I've gotten so much is that he was obviously a, a serious musician for whatever that really means, but he, he was a, a musician at heart before anything. Uh, I'm curious, do you think the reason he continued on with musical comedy or comedy music at some point was just merely this is how I'm making my money this is how or do you think there was anything in him that wanted to keep doing funny stuff at all mm, there was but at the same time he wanted to you know he also wanted he wanted to prove that he could do you know um, big band music as well as anybody else mm -hmm. but he tried it and uh, it didn't go over right people just wouldn't buy it yeah he had a big um, spike jones other orchestra performing at the trocadero uh, in los angeles or hollywood uh, los angeles area uh, and people were walking out and saying you know what is this uh, in the words of Mickey Katz, I just say, uh, what, what is this crap? You know, if we want a symphony, we'll go to the Hollywood Bowl. You know, <laughs> we didn't come to hear, you know, uh, they, they didn't come to hear that. Mm -hmm. they, they expected the comedy stuff, especially that was right at his peak, too. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Where it, I, maybe it's easier to go from, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, any art form, easier to go from quote-unquote straight to comedy rather than the reverse because once that expectation is set you're kind of boned yeah it was very difficult for him to break away from it and uh but of course he, he recorded all sorts of things and even toward the end you know he's with the folk music craze he's uh doing you know spike jones new band you know the washington square and then and then the uh, the hank williams hits and and all these other things you know um and they they sound great but you know um you would you wouldn't guess that they were his you know right sure there's but no i think it's it's sad that the uh one of the i mean uh, liberty records gave him the uh the liberty to do whatever he wanted but at the same time they were in the business of selling records so they kept coming up with these ideas like that uh, to sell records, you know. And so one of the one of his pet projects in those last few years was an album called Persuasive Concussion, and it didn't get finished. Mm. Uh, and and if I sent you the uh, uh, the Liberty version of Carmen, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The um. Boy, it's it's so hard with somebody who it's very easy, I think, to discuss people in context who are always comedians, who are only comedians, who are exclusively or pretty much exclusively comedians. But somebody who clearly had to struggle with the comedy part of their career or struggle with the other part of their career that they wanted to happen. It's very rare. How do you think how do you think that sort of dichotomy informed the rest of his life and has it informed your writing about it well i think you have to recognize it was a struggle this is a guy who wanted to be a jazz band drummer mm -hmm. originally you know and he's he's working as a side man in various bands and he's having some success i mean he was uh i guess big crosby's favorite drummer he's on over a hundred 
uh, he's, he's playing the drums or the percussion on over 100 Bing Crosby records. So he, you know, has really had some success, but uh, where he started to get some recognition is when he put together a, a little group of guys and they're doing this stuff on the, on the side for fun, you know, some novelty recordings and things. And, and they, and they get a contract with RCA and they, and they're cutting sides, but nothing really happens until Der Fuhrer's face. Uh, and then suddenly overnight, he's, you know, this, this huge, uh, this phenomenal success doing these, these, these crazy records. And then he can't do anything else. Yeah. He's really, you know, in that era, especially, uh, the same thing with actors. I mean, they, uh, you know, they hit it playing one type of part. Most of them were, uh, typecast. They were locked into that type of part for the rest of their careers, whether they were leading men or, or, or women, or they were character actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, supporting players they were uh, by and large locked into that that stereotype or that mold and the same thing with spike you know it was very hard for him to break out of that um when you started writing about him first what i mean wh- how quickly did your perception of who he was change when you started interviewing people and researching him Uh, boy, I think, you know, there were, I, I interviewed dozens of people for the first, uh, the first book, which was called, uh, Spike Jones and the City Slickers. But, uh, it was a while, I think, before I, I started to, um, I started to talk to people that wanted to show me that other side of him. You know, initially I think, you know, they, they think, you know, what you want to hear about it. You want to hear the funny stories and things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and although I got to know Mickey Katz pretty well and he told me some things, but it really wasn't until I started really digging deep and interviewing, just going after just about anybody I could find. I mean, somebody, there was, uh, a guy who had a music store. He had worked for Spike. He had been, uh, he had played clarinet for Spike back in the forties and, uh, Somebody said, you know, maybe you should call this guy. And I called him up. He says, yeah, what I'd have to say, I don't think you want to hear. (laughs) (laughs) And I, it took me, I I think a while to persuade him that I did want to hear it. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure all of it was true, you know. Sure. I I did corroborate, um, you know, the, the stories that I felt that there was something that there was something in back behind them. I, uh, I did corroborate those with other, uh, with other people. I mean, uh, it's a real advantage having, you know, started all, all the way back then. I mean, that, that there were a great number of people still alive yeah, who had worked with him. There were even uh, a couple of guys who'd gone to high school with him. There was even one of his teachers I, I talked to. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he graduated high school in 1929. So here it is more than 50 years later, you know, I, I was able to talk to one of his teachers. So that's amazing. Have you yourself? Um, I mean, are you musical at all? No, I played piano when I was I was seven or eight, but it didn't it only lasted about a year and a half. I just didn't want to practice. And then I <laughs> I tried picking up the guitar when I was about 18 and uh, taking music lessons, but a friend of mine was able to 
without being able to read music, was able to pick up a guitar and play anything that he he watched or play things that he had watched people play. You know? Yeah. He'd watch you play it, and then he'd pick up a guitar and he'd play it. You know, and that just that just did it for me. And there was no yeah. justice in that, you know, because he could play it better without being able to read music or or study it or anything than I could. Wow. You know, so so was it the first book on Spike Jones? Period. The Sp- no, it uh, it was uh, Jason. It was uh, there had been people who had attempted to write books on him. There had mm-hmm. been at least a couple of attempts prior to that mm-hmm. um, that hadn't just just hadn't happened uh there was a discography floating around and uh ted herring the spikes uh, archivist uh, and uh i i uh, was able to use that and, and build on it and uh, uh but i mean this you know uh, i mentioned skip craig earlier skip uh was uh, was a band boy for Spike and uh, had started collecting discographical information back in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And then when he met Ted Herring in the 60s, he turned it over to him. Uh, and Ted was corresponding with Spike. Uh, and asking him questions and things. And uh, when, when Spike played Disneyland in 1964, uh, Ted had his opportunity to, to finally see the band uh, in action. And uh, he, he, uh, he went up and uh, introduced, uh, he went up and, and, and to talk to Spike, I guess, during a break or after the show or something. And he started asking him questions. And, and Spike said, there's a guy named Ted Herring you should talk to. <laughs> he said, "I am Ted Herring." I love it. I love it. He didn't even bother to introduce himself. That's I amazing. It's not, but uh, too excited. Anyway, yeah. So, uh, so this is, Spike is the best archivist. Uh, you know, working on his to this day collecting information. I mean, if I I have questions about things, I I just go and ask Ted. Go ask know. him. Okay, that's Any, amazing. Anything to do with. That type of thing, you know. I mean, there's discography, you know, discographical questions. Absolutely, uh, Ted is the go-to guy. But uh, and now I've, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your. Uh, you asked me about the. Yeah, you know, it was the first book. Yeah, yeah. I was just curious if I'm. I'm wondering why nobody else has succeeded before you, even in writing, you know, something less detailed. Yeah, it had been almost 20 years. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy that nobody had had even tried, or that honestly, that at some point somebody hadn't wrangled him into writing his own. Uh, you know, twenty years into his own career, it wouldn't be unusual. Yeah, I've seen him that, happen. That probably would never have happened. But yeah. uh, there were, like I say, a couple of people who had made an made an attempt, had made a start. You know, had gone and interviewed a couple of people, and then given up or or whatever. Sure. Yeah. That 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 makes sense. Do you feel? I mean. I don't know. Writing can take up a, a, a real personal part of your brain. Do you feel any connection to Spike as a result of all of this work, this many years worth of work writing about him? I I feel I've gotten to know him as a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he. Uh, I'm, you know, I, I certainly feel much. Um, uh, to, to a much greater extent than I did the first time, you know, um, it's just having lived with the material for so long and having talked to so many people and, uh, 
who knew him more than a hundred more than a hundred people that i mean that's uh that's that's i think the best thing that you can hope for too in 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 writing something like this uh because i mean you know unless you discover somebody's an absolute monster although i guess at that point you still also understand who they are deep down you know yeah i've never i i don't think i could write about somebody who was a monster sure uh, you know there would have to be some uh some aspect of him i i I really admired or something. I don't think I could do a uh, a, a book on Hitler or or, sure, sure. or Jeffrey Dahmer or anything, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's the thing that always catches me up on true crime and, and things is how does anybody sit through? How do you survive even the research part? That I don't understand. No, I couldn't do it. I uh, has to be somebody I, I I really admired. And the only other actual biography I've done is a book on. An Irish uh, stage and film actor named Jack McGowan. Mm-hmm. Was, um, a lot of people remember him from The Quiet Man, but he's in Doctor Zhivago. He's in Tom Jones. He's in The Exorcist. Uh, but his stage work is the most interesting thing uh, because he was Samuel Beckett. Uh, who's, I consider the uh, the most important playwright and the most influential uh, of, of the twentieth century. Um, he was McGowan was considered Beckett's foremost interpreter, and uh, so I I did an authorized uh, uh, biography of him and interviewed everybody from John Lennon to Roman Polanski to uh, James Mason to you know I just he Peter O'Toole he worked with a lot of people like that. It, uh, wow what what's what's your goal in writing either of these is it just to give people is i guess is that discovery of of somebody is that part of it or is that uh just a, a bonus do you, is it just literally to tell people this uh, the, the true story of who this person was i hope to uh, i i hope that the book uh you know, number one is uh, it's a resource for people and who who are already familiar with uh, Spike and uh, just want to know more about him or about the, the work that he did. But I hope that it also inspires. Um, it introduces people to him. You know, it it, it keeps uh, it keeps him keeps him alive, keeps his work alive, and uh, uh, is there for people that uh, you know to. Rediscover or, or rediscover him. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you know, just by default, you 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 are helping to keep alive all of it. You know, which I think is great. I I think people will probably then discover all of his work. And if you if you read something like this, I, I feel like you become sympathetic to somebody's uh, quest uh, to to broaden their horizons or at least show people another side of them. So I think it's interesting in doing what you do. You are keeping all of the work alive uh, whether it's the stuff that they're most famous for or less famous for stuff that they wanted to become famous for have you through your research discovered anything that nobody else knew about or only you and this archivist knew about or just undiscovered recordings anything like that yeah i just i discovered recordings that the archivist certainly knew about i had the uh uh at some point uh i was i was given the opportunity to produce a cd and so I, uh, for, a, for a company, and uh, 
I um, I told the I told the company's A and R man. I said, you know, there's all this really great um, rare, this incredibly rare stuff. It's just sitting there collecting dust in the archive. And he said, I don't want rare one entertaining. Yeah, so I yeah. gave him the most entertaining rarities I could find. But uh, with with Ted Herring's help, I was able to uh, stuff that CD with um, a lot of a lot of material that had never been issued before, or had never been reissued, or. Um, but uh, yeah, I made I certainly made other discoveries. The one I mentioned of the the guy behind the scenes who's masterminding everything. I, I sort of compare Spike to the Wizard of Oz, you know, mm -hmm. the behind the curtain that's uh, nobody's paying attention to. But I, I also, in writing about him, I also discovered, uh, you know, other other artists uh, who were active. Uh, there's a guy named Gerard Hoffman, who was a British uh, humorist who uh, died tragically young, but mm -hmm. uh, he uh, did uh, a couple or three albums in the 50s of... Uh, uh, it's just very, it's just absolutely insane stuff. I, I ran yeah. across somewhere, I ran across in my research a, a quote from, I guess it was Time Magazine or something describing him as the, um, the sophisticated Spike Jones or the, that's not quite the, uh, you know, the, the, sure. the classical, you know, the, the classical Spike Jones or the, um, or the sophisticated versions by or something like that, and I discovered mm -hmm. that this guy had uh, just by uh, by concentrating on classical music, which you know Spike did a lot of great uh, parodies of classical music in the '40s. By the '50s, he'd you know, except for the Black and Blue Danube Waltz and a couple of other things, he'd gone on to other things. But here was Hoffman doing these uh, these symphony concerts with uh, you know overture for vacuum cleaners and <laughs> uh, all sorts of wild stuff. He did two or three of these, these huge uh, symphonic concerts in London and, and put out these LPs. And uh, he was also a cartoonist. Yeah. Wonderful uh, little cartoon books of musicians and orchestras and stuff. Just these crazy uh, cartoons that he did. I, I, I discovered people like that. Yeah. And, and really the whole, uh, uh, I think I was only vaguely aware of some of these people like the Hoosier Hotshots uh, did these wonderful recordings in the thirties, uh, the same type of thing that Spike was doing, um, but on a, on a smaller scale. Mm -hmm. I just, I interviewed the, uh, the, the uh, Gabe Ward, the clarinet player with the Hoosier Hotshots just uh, two weeks before he died. Mm -hmm. uh, we suddenly got the idea that I should, I should find this guy and talk to him and uh, a couple of member, members of the uh, the corn cobblers you know was uh, was another group uh, yeah I, I love all that stuff all these uh, uh, comedy novelty recordings so I yeah I, I became familiar with many many artists and groups that I had never heard of and uh, researching Spike's work it's a nice kind of context to have, especially if it's stuff that, that ha didn't get the exposure. Um, I, I'm assuming they were very appreciative to, to speak about that part of their lives. 
yeah, they uh, certainly nobody ever called most of them before to ask them about this stuff, you know. Yeah. And uh, they were, I was, I was looking them up in the uh, musicians' union directory. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, uh, musicians never uh, uh, quit the union. Right. Members for life. Why? Because of the death benefits, and uh, which means that you get hold of the just a little tip for any of you doing musical research, you know, about, you know, especially on any bands uh, from the past, uh, you often find the surviving members of these bands in the musicians union directories. Um, that's how I got hold of a lot of these guys. Uh, I was, I have to say, I was tipped off by, uh, uh, by somebody who, who did a book on Spike. Around the same time, I was working at a book. It was uh, it was another uh, book that was being done. Mm-hmm. That's. I mean, I, I will honestly tell you that is a good tip for me, considering this one person that I've been researching for a long time is a comedian, but also a musician, and um, knew a ton of musicians. So I it uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take that bit of advice to heart because I, I I can I can use it. The guy whose idea that was his name was Jack Myrtle, and he wrote a uh, a book on Spike called uh, "Thank You Music Lovers," which is a uh, a bio discography. Oh, that's but, great. Uh, Myrtle is a musician himself, and so he he knew that you know nobody had to, <laughs> had to tell him you know that was how you get hold of these people. Yeah, I took that idea and I ran with it. And I, yeah, of course. Uh, in fact, even when I'm in New York, you know, hanging out with a musician and. Uh, they had to go to the union, and so I went with them, and I picked up a copy of the directory, and I found people in that directory that uh, had been members of uh, either Spike's band or of um, some of these other bands like the uh, that I mentioned. That's amazing. Yeah, I, the, uh, that that stuff is that stuff is a goldmine, um, and it's it's I, it's it's harder, obviously. You know, the the person that I've been researching is not as high profile so it's a lot harder to find the people who worked with him um but i i also appreciate that there there's this thing about um famous people well-known people uh people sort of assume the work's been done they assume somebody out there has done that work and you you must have realized at some point oh oh shit nobody's written a a good book about him or a book about him period so let me bang this out and you like just do all this deep research and I just love that it's carried you through nearly 40 years of research and writing and that you continue to update it. It's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's fascinating to me too, but uh, I'm not sure there'll be a fifth edition. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, yeah, it takes a certain amount of energy and yeah. uh, to do that. I, I mean, I don't know what more I could possibly, all the people have said to me, you know, what, what could you possibly put in the fourth edition that isn't in the third edition, you know? <laughs> uh, and yet I, I found things. I mean, there was a, uh, I'll tell you one little story here if we have time, but yeah. uh, uh, when Spike put out Dear Fuhrer's Face, it was right before this record ban. There was a notorious character named uh, Jimmy Petrillo, who was the head of the musicians union uh, at the time. And he was a frustrated musician himself, been a former trumpet player. His ambition was to, or one of them anyway, was to, um, and, uh, and I compare him to Hitler in the book. Uh, <laughs> his, 
one of his ambitions was to destroy the record industry once and for all time. Oh, my God. Uh, I mean, that is absolutely insane. Well, but in his demented little brain, he thought, you know, the, uh, the, the record industry is, uh, is, is taking money out of the pockets of musicians. You know, it's, 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 uh, they could be playing live gigs and, uh, you know, because the records are out there, they're, they're, they're working less. So he wanted to just annihilate the uh, the record industry. Wow. And, uh, he uh, see he declared this ban on recording the first. I'm not sure if it was the first one. I know he'd done uh, uh, as he was the head of the Chicago uh, Union before this. But uh, anyway, it was an industry wide ban in '42, and it lasted uh, about a year and a half, two years. Some of the labels, some of the record labels. Uh, capitulated and signed uh, agreements before others did but uh, it kept it kept Spike Jones and the City Slickers out of the studios for about two years wow. and, um, so the only way that they survived during that time was uh, I mean one of the if, if they hadn't just happened to record their fear's face just two or three days before the band they never would have survived they you know um they would have just uh, disappeared. But anybody, uh, what I started to say was that uh, Darfur's face was just a huge hit that everybody wanted a piece of it. And so there were, uh, I think, three other, uh, there were uh, you know, groups uh, doing covers of it. Um, and uh, a couple of them were done just like Spikes, just before the, uh, before the band, even before the record had even come out. They, um, mm -hmm. They picked up on this, but because uh, it was originally written for a Donald Duck cartoon, right? But one of the covers, there was a character named Eli Oberstein who had worked for RCA, and he'd been fired a couple of times. In fact, so he had his own label, mm -hmm. and he came out with this version of Darfur's face, and there the union. So what? What is this? I mean. Uh, you know, there's a, a record ban on it. He claimed that he had bought um, the masters that had been recorded in Mexico. And he had bought the masters down in Mexico from some guy named Juan Valdez. Mm -hmm. um, sounds to me like the guy who's famous for going coffee meetings. You're right. <laughs> I'm not, and I'm not sure when that started. You know, it, it may, in fact, have been that, that, that's where he took the name, but. He claimed that he bought the Masters down in Mexico anyway, uh, and it, it it turned out that uh, I mean the the uh, the story goes is that he was recording these things surreptitiously in a garage in Manhattan, mm -hmm. and, and then claiming uh, you know that uh, he had, uh, he he bought these bought them down in Mexico and uh, it um, he was. I think he was he was denounced. He was fined by the union. He was um, yeah. It was. <laughs> I think they. I, know, I mean, they let him off with a warning, and then they expelled him, and then they reinstated him later on. And even RCA went and rehired him. But uh, Arthur Fields was the uh, the name that was on the label, and uh, apparently he'd agreed to do this on the promise that his name was not going to be on the label and then uh oversight double crossed him and put his name on the label so that he claimed he had absolutely nothing to do with it oh my god uh, you know <laughs> wow it was on and on but uh 
Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, and then and then and then uh and then Petrillo wasn't done. I mean, in the uh uh like those forty eight, he does the same thing again. He decrees this this industry wide ban on recording and everybody just goes crazy trying to stockpile as much stuff as they possibly can. So Spike is recording everything he can get his hands on, including something written by a school teacher. Uh I, I think actually for he wrote this for what elementary school kids or, or middle high school kids, I forget. Uh, this, uh, this number that turned out to be uh, you know, two front teeth. Mm-hmm. And they just uh, got hold of it and, and recorded it. Well, uh, it, was, it was just made to order for Spike because his trumpet player, George Rock, who was six feet tall and about 250 pounds, uh, one of his other talents, in addition to being a brilliant trumpet player and absolutely the rock of the band, he did this little kitty voice, and he'd actually done it with Dish um, Nickel for its band before he joined Spike. But um, he he recorded this thing, and it he just sounds like a little kid, you know. Mm-hmm. He just uh, so this recording of Two Front Teeth was one of the big hits for the band. Yeah, George Rock and all this. This well, the fan mail that he got was was I don't know thousands of people mailing him teeth in envelopes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a very that's an upsetting image. Is what that is, but it's appropriately funny. That's a, <laughs> um, I, I, I yeah. hope that makes your day. Yeah, no, it's it's good. It, it it's going to ruin my it's going to haunt my nightmares too. Is what that will yeah, do. Ruin your, ruin your appetite for. <laughs> Um, I, I really appreciate you, first of all, doing this show, but second of all, doing just such a diligent job of, of chronicling somebody's life. That is something I admire, something I maybe would like to do myself one day, but I really admire it. I, I think it's it's a lot of work, and it's to be not just commended, but it's uh, it's a thing to be celebrated when, um, you know, somebody tries to keep somebody else's work alive. I always appreciate that. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. And I, if it's inspired anybody to... Uh following my footsteps so to speak and uh and do that with uh with somebody else that uh yeah you know, i mean it was suggested to me that i should do uh kay kaiser after, yeah. the, after the book came out and uh i just said no <laughs> i don't want to do another musician you know i just fair enough like i'd done it you know yeah, I, yeah. Uh, you know i mean the, the fact that i ended up doing it uh four times but i mean i just i just able to get deeper and deeper into the research but I, I just didn't want to do Kay Kaiser or, uh, or anybody else. Uh, right. No. Do you, uh, would you like to tell people, please, where they can find you, where they can find the book? I'm going into hiding myself. But <laughs> uh, the, the, the book is called Spike Jones Off the Record, The Man of Murdered Music. It is available on Amazon.com in both paper and hardback. It's available on BarnesandNoble.com. It's, uh, I should say, it's published by Bear Manor Media, which is B-E-A-R, Manor, M-A-N-O-R, Media. Uh, also, actually, so, uh, BearManorMedia.com is yet another place where you can find this book. That's to say, the, the fourth edition has a yellow and red, uh, it's, it's, it's a color photograph of Spike uh, with, a, with a, you know, a yellow and red uh, cover, but it's 
I, I only mention that because there's other editions out there that have other covers. Mm. If you find the one where he's the color photograph of him where he's in the white and gold, um, you know, he had these really extraordinary suits that he uh, he had made for himself. And mm-hmm. he had this white and gold number done when he uh, performed for President Truman, but he's surrounded by some of his jackets. Um, black and uh, chartreuse, whatever it is, uh, white with uh, red uh, these um, window pane checks, mm-hmm. uh, black and red, red and blue. Um, yeah. I love it. I love it. Please, everybody, pick up the book. It's fantastic. Um, Jordan, thank you again for doing the show. Oh, thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure. And thank you all for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at ComedyOnVinyl.com. A major portion of Comedy on Vinyl has been underwritten by Stand Up Records. Please visit StandUpRecords.com for all your comedy needs and tune in to the new Stand Up Records channel available on the Roku, where you can also find select episodes of this podcast. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, watch videos, and imbibe freely of our multimedia content going back 15-plus years. Stolen Dress Entertainment. Hey, it's my turn. Ah!